Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into today's episode, if you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. For just $4.99 a month, you'll get ad-free listening, one early episode a week, two bonus episodes per month, think a special sit-down with big thinkers like Daniel Kahneman, a 25% discount on Intelligence Square Plus, our new streaming service, which allows you to ask questions to all speakers, a 15% discount and priority access to live in-person events, and our new premium monthly newsletter, which includes write-ups from events, a section to see what subscribers are saying about the ideas and speakers we feature in the events and podcasts, and a curated list of the most impactful articles our team has come across in the past month. And everything I just mentioned is available for just $4.99 a month. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify. So please sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. That's iq, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Nihal Arthanaika, the award-winning broadcaster and now author, joins us to discuss his new book, Let's Talk, How to Have Better Conversations. Fingers crossed, it's a good one then. Our host for this discussion is Noshin Iqbal, another great conversationalist. She's the host of Today in Focus, The Guardian's flagship podcast. Let's join Noshin and Nihal in conversation. Hello, I am delighted to introduce Nihal Arthanaikan today. Nihal is an acclaimed broadcaster and TV presenter. He currently presents a daily afternoon show on BBC Five Live and hosts the official Penguin Books podcast. He has won multiple awards, every award going, which includes Interview of the Year for the BBC Radio and Music Awards. 
And his first book, which we'll be discussing tonight, is Let's Talk How to Have Better Conversations. I think that's all the uh, intro stuff done, Nihal. Um, should we just crack on and get straight into it? Yeah, for sure, Nasheen. Nice to see you. So you've written this book, which is a really warm, inquisitive journey into what makes a good conversation. So obviously, in, in, as in one of the chapters you've answered, could you tell us, Nihal, what drives your curiosity on this subject and why have you written it? Uh, well, what drives my curiosity on this subject is curiosity. I'm curious about everything and everyone, really. And that goes back to, I guess, my mum and my mum being someone who would always stop and have conversations with everybody. She was a nurse in the NHS for over 30 years and you couldn't walk through Harlow Town Centre on a Saturday afternoon without someone coming up to her and reminding her of their ailments and saying how much better they were now than when they last saw her when they were in a much more vulnerable state. And she always stopped and spoke to them, sometimes for way too long as far as we were concerned as kids. But it did, I guess, via osmosis, teach me about the importance of listening and the importance of understanding that everybody has a story. And that's something I very much brought into my broadcasting career because it's not all about the kind of A-listers that end up sitting in front of me, whether it's the Matthew McConaughey's or the Sir Billy Connolly's or Sally Field or Chrissy Hind. It's also about people who call in because we've decided to have a conversation about leaving the nest, for instance. Uh, or a conversation about motherhood and how difficult motherhood could be. And people call in and they tell you the most incredible stories. So my curiosity comes from curiosity. And actually at the basis of pretty much all conversation has to be a curiosity. Mm. And that is the kind of antithesis of a narcissistic age, which encourages us all to be constantly promoting ourselves on social media rather than asking about others. We do talk about this in the book quite a bit about this sort of diatribe of monologues that take place in which replicate alleged conversation online, be it on Twitter or in other forms of social media. But for you, what makes a really good conversation? What are the elements there? Like what, what do you enjoy talking about? Well, the important thing for me is to not go into a conversation expecting certain outcomes it's just to allow myself to be led by the person that I'm having a conversation with. And then they may well ask questions of me as well. So you're playing kind of conversational tennis. But it's interesting the words good and bad. I use these words when interviewing Professor Elizabeth Stokoe for the book. And she said, well, from an academic point of view, we prefer the word effective or yeah. less effective or ineffective. So we don't put a kind of moral judgment on it, a value judgment on it. We look at it and say, OK, did both parties get out of it what they wanted to? So in a conversation between myself and George Ezra, the singer, mm -hmm. yesterday on my radio show, did he get what he wanted out of it? And I think quite often with people that are being interviewed, what they want is an engaged interviewer who asks interesting questions and then follows those questions up by having listened to the answers, right, rather than having a list of 10 questions that they will stick to no matter what. And this is quite interesting because in the book I interviewed Johan Hari, who's written many books, and one of his brilliant books is called Stolen Focus, all about our diminishing attention span. And he cites an example where he, Noshin, was in a 
uh, a cafe in New England. And he overheard two men who were on a first date and had never met before having a conversation. And one mentioned that his brother had recently died. And the other man just carried on talking about himself. He completely missed this really quite important part of this person's life. So effective conversations really are about effective and active listening. That's what they're about. And so, when I listen, no, sorry, Dushin, go on. No, I was going to say, so no pressure. He wants an active interview, everyone, someone who's engaged and listening. And I'm talking to the pro here. So, you know, let's bear that in mind. But go on. It's just, it's just you know, people, the reason that I, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because when I came to Five Live, and Nasheen, you'll know that I was doing BBC Asian Network before and Radio One before that. You know, on the BBC Asian Network, I just did what I did. We didn't have a big enough team. So you ended up doing long interviews, mm. not because you you saw that podcasts would be a thing of the future and that actually people would be really interested in long interviews. You just didn't have the staff to be doing two guests or three guests or four guests in an hour. You get one guest. And then when I moved to Five Live... I started to get comments from their audience saying, I've really enjoyed that interview. You were actually listening. It was more like a conversation. And the more of these that came in, the more I thought, well, if people are making a point of telling me that, that means they're not hearing that through elsewhere. broadcasters. Yeah, elsewhere. They're just not hearing that, which then made me think, okay, well, maybe I should look into this. And then kind of be an evangelist for conversation as an art form. And now we can all be better at it, me included, much better at it. And you mentioned like Johan Hari, Professor Stokoe, and there is a range of characters which and experts basically in this book that you've chosen and arrived at and have spoken to to try and understand what is it? What are the nuts and bolts of what makes a good conversation? And how is it that you're doing what you do? I guess I imagine for you, you've been doing what you've done for decades and to actually examine how you have achieved something that makes other people realize that's a good conversation it's not something you've necessarily analyzed a lot so how did you and how did you end up picking the people that you did to interview and take learnings from and there are really good conversations here I should say Henry Hitchings Rain Kelly there's there's a whole host of people sharing their wisdom yeah it's pretty diverse isn't it well I interviewed the former president of Ireland Mary McAleese machine and you know, she was involved in the Northern Ireland peace process, you know, and you think to yourself, okay, that's a really difficult conversation to have. And having read her book, I was, of course, made aware that there were people who had tried to kill members of her family. How do you sit around the table with people like that? And then also speaking to former Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, who was a crisis hostage negotiator for the Metropolitan Police. How do you approach a conversation like that where someone is either going to do harm to themselves or others or both? Then you speak to Dia Khan, yeah. the multi-award winning filmmaker, who made a documentary which involved her spending a lot of time with American white supremacists. Then you're looking further afield. And Lorraine Kelly was interesting because I think that of all the daytime TV presenters who are involved in this kind of 
mid-morning chat show type thing or breakfast chat show type thing. She's the most conversational. She's the one that you genuinely feel like they're listening. You know, I don't think you could probably say that of Piers Morgan. Yeah. Well, she's incredibly but, relaxed. Yes. Very intimate. Yes. And she's open. And look, alongside people that are very well known, like Professor Tanya Byron and Lorraine Kelly, there was Rick Haythornthwaite, who people outside of, you know, the FTSE 100 business circles probably haven't heard of. But I had come across him because he was chair of the South Bank Centre in London and I had been a trustee. And just watching him operate, but also he was former global chairman of MasterCard, which meant that he got the best table at the Brits and he would invite my wife and I to the Brits. And I would kind of see Stormzy and Stormzy would say hello and I'd say, look, you know, can you come and say hello to uh, Rick, my friend Rick? And the way Rick managed to make everybody feel at ease whether it was Ed Sheeran or Stormzy or any number of people that came over to the table, but also the way he chaired board meetings was just so inspirational and so interesting. And I found out something I didn't know about him, that actually he had gone and studied this in a professional context, right? the art of conversation in business and leadership. So it wasn't just about kind of how we should use conversation in personal relationships. It was also, Nasheen, about business leadership, because I think you and I, throughout our careers, have come across people who are very good leaders and very good managers and ones who are very bad and not very good. Now, they are, uh, maybe I should use the words effective and less effective. <laughs> we can use uh, good or bad. We're talking about bosses. We can use good or bad. I think that's fair. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. They've made a film called Bad Bosses, haven't they? So you can say Yeah. So it's, it's, so I wanted it. And then Matthew Syed, who's just fantastic. Um, yeah, it was just a, just a great range of people that I'd come across in my life. That I thought, you're a professional conversationalist. You may not describe yourself as such, but you are a conversationalist. And that's what I wanted. Neil, in terms of your career and the people that you've interviewed, and I know you said it's not just celebrities and the big names that have really got your juices flowing. But to me, it feels like having watched you, like Asian Network was a really good or big training ground in, in this, this area that you're now in. Can you tell me a bit more about that stage and what it was about working on that show that really made you understand the power of listening, conversation, empathy? Well, Radio 1 didn't turn me into a conversationalist. The BBC Asian Network did. And the reason being partly is because I really had to listen. Because when you walk into that world of debate on the BBC Asian Network, it's unlike any other debate show on British radio. You're dealing with the friction and tension that exists between Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists. You're then dealing with the caste system and the frictions that deal within that. Then you're dealing with things such as partition, the massacre that took place of Sikhs in 1984, the destruction of uh, a Hindu temple in Indian Ayodhya, and then the destruction of the mosque that was placed upon it, uh, Narendra Modi's uh, alleged or certainly his charge of complicity uh, or not doing enough to stop what happened afterwards in the Gujarat uh, and the pogroms that took place then. So you're getting into this world that is so fraught mm. with potential pitfalls, Nasheen, as you well know. 
that you have to listen. You have to listen. Otherwise, you will mess up. And I did mess up once. You know, I, I got death threats from various members of the Sikh community. Uh, that came on top really, really quickly. Um, and I remember when that happened over a conversation I had on radio, I actually called up the Sikh TV channel that was discussing me the day that a broadsheet newspaper essentially accused me of insulting Sikhism, which I hadn't done. And I remember calling them up and saying, look, I made a mistake, okay? And if you haven't made a mistake ever in your life, then fair enough, good for you. But I did. And I wanted to, against the advice of the BBC, actually, who said, are you sure you want to do this? We'd rather you didn't do this. I said, no, I have to take this by the horns and say, wow, so that's why, you know, when I get to Five Live, there is no such thing as a controversial conversation for me on Five Live. You know, Brexit and all that stuff. I'm like, dude, once you have a conversation about 1984, right? Yeah. And what happened after that, you can have a conversation about anything on national radio. You know, I interviewed General Bra, who ordered the attack on the Golden Temple in Amritsar. And he is one of the most, in, in vast sections of the Sikh community, one of the most universally loathed human beings it could be. Mm. I also interviewed Tommy Robinson on the BBC Asian Network, right? So we were doing these things week in, week out, you know, um, and it was full on. How do you handle it when, and it is, we'll come to this in a second, the difference between having a conversation as part of an interview and the difference of between having a conversation in life. But when it comes to an interview subject, how do you handle it when things can get a bit aggressive, confrontational? Someone says something that's not down, that's not within the BBC guidelines, for instance. How do you steer and handle that conversation? Well, I've had to learn that just by thinking you're some kind of GCSE Jeremy Paxman is not going to work, right? And actually being Jeremy Paxman, that style, John Humphreys, Jeremy Paxman, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's not effective. And I think audiences have moved on. I mean, you have to look at how poor Piers Morgan's TV viewings are to know that actually people, people want more light than noise. But what happened was, certainly in the first few years of being on BBC Asian Network, actually for quite a lot of time, I was like, this verbal pugilist. So whenever anyone kind of went at it, we'll go at it. I mean, I still had this kind of hip hop mentality. Like I was battle rapping you and you've got lyrics, I've got lyrics, let's go. Uh, and it was just really performative. It wasn't informative. Mm. And, you know, Jeremy Paxman asking Michael Howard the same question 13 times isn't informative. It's performative, mm. right? And for some reason back then, we all thought that that was, that was good journalism, but actually it isn't great journalism, is it? You know, it's still a conversation, weirdly enough. It may not be working in the same way that you and I would think of a conversation, but it is still a dialogue of sorts. Actually, it might veer more into an interrogation. But yeah, I did a lot of that. And I had to learn with the help of a really good producer, actually called Bill Mostyn. He was constantly telling me to calm it down. Mm. Dial it down. You'll get more from them if you just give them space. But also, I've got to say, Nusheen, ultimately, I get no real joy from interviewing politicians. 
I also feel like I, I, I really don't do my, my audience much of a service either. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish that there was politicians that were a little bit more old school in the sense that, yeah, okay, let's have a conversation about this rather than the constant thing of I'm trying to avoid you tripping me up. I'm trying to trip you up. I'm going to focus on numbers, specifics to try and make you look stupid. I'm going to stick to a party line and repeat it ad nauseum. I just think it all feels rather reductive to me. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, if there is one interview subject that everyone can agree on that is designed not to have a conversation, it is with a politician. They will very much stick to their message and irrespective of what you say, keep plugging at it. But it's interesting that you say that those sort of combative moments, the interrogations, they're not what people want. Whereas at the moment, we also know they're the moments that go viral um, Mm. and are shared quite a lot. What do you think that then also says about this other need that people seem to have for deeper connection and empathy and real stuff of substance being said. Well, someone told me the other day that James O'Brien's videos used to be the viral ones where he used to just dismantle some caller, right, Mm -hmm. who was chatting nonsense and didn't have the same uh, amount of facts at their disposal. Well, they did have the same amount of facts. They just decided to ignore them, whereas James O'Brien didn't ignore them um apparently now the viral videos of his that go further wider are the ones where he looks down the barrel of the camera and delivers a monologue you know as a form of connection i worry that people mistake tweeting each other as a conversation that's the thing but also as well 
you know, constantly trying to get sound bites to kind of get profile and to monetize division, I just find really very sad. I mean, in my book, we talk about uh, Dr. Johnson and the coffee houses of the 18th century, where you were encouraged to disagree with people, but you were also, as it was fashion of the age, to be polite in doing so. Yeah. Right. And people complain about things. Uh, and then, as you point out, they love watching them, but them loving watching them for like a 30 second dopamine hit of watching someone get embarrassed isn't because they don't like having conversations. Fair. Right, you know, I guess it's. I mean, it is a sign of the age we're in. I mean, it's not necessarily an original thing to say that big tech has, in massive ways, democratized the way people speak and who is heard, but also at the same time has contributed largely to this ever increasing polarization of debate and in people not being able to listen to each other. Is that something you generally agree with, or do you think there are more benefits than there are disadvantages? Well, I think it's not coincidental that neither Bill Gates nor Steve Jobs allowed their children to have phones at the dinner table or indeed didn't give them to them until they were into their mid-teens, I think. Yeah, look, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not anti-technology. I've got a phone right next to me. I love Twitter and Instagram so much so that I've now put limits on them so I can only uh, visit them for a certain amount of time a day. I think they are beneficial and I think there are benefits to be had by them. But I don't think that we should see them or certainly we should be conscious of them not becoming the default way we choose to communicate deeply with each other. That's what concerns me. Don't see that as a replacement. And certainly when you're out with a friend, a loved one, a family member, don't put this thing on the table next to you. Don't do that. Focus. Be in the moment. I saw two guys today sitting opposite each other at a small table in a Greg's of all places. And they were just staring at, they were less than a foot and a half away from each other. And they were staring at their phones. Now, don't do that. Look at each other, talk to each other, find out about each other, because you're not connected to the world in the way that you think you are. What you are is connected to apps that are largely designed to be addictive. And what you're doing is having your eyeballs monetized. That's what you're doing, you know. So let's not let's not let's not muck about with this. These are business models. Yeah, and I guess audience members who are listening now understand that as that's one big don't. A lot of people would realise, or well, I suppose know that this is is the biggest distraction. So distracting. I almost hit myself with it. Um, but what are your key do's in how to have like that? tennis-like conversation, that really enjoyable one that release, releases that hormone that you've written a lot about in the book. I'd like to call it oxytocin. Yeah, I mean, but... yeah, yeah. Don't call it oxycontin, no. Yeah. Uh, oxytocin. <laughs> yeah. oxytocin. Yeah, 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 yeah. I actually make that point in the book that oxytocin shouldn't be uh, mistaken for oxycontin, which was the, uh, the, the terrible drug. It brought misery to so many Americans' lives. Um, Going back to Chief Superintendent John Sutherland, he talks about the Chinese symbol for listening in my book. And it's something that he employed as a crisis negotiator. And the Chinese see listening not as we do. So we see listening really as your ears, most people would say, right? And then they will think, 
uh, they've thought a little bit more about this, about verbal cues. So, so there's like nonverbal and verbal, and then there's nonverbal, which is how I'm moving my hands, et cetera. But the Chinese also ask you to listen with your mind, right? To really be present and to listen with your heart, which is empathy, emotion, sympathy. And if you add then those four elements together, suddenly you're actively listening. And you have to ask yourself this question, okay? And this is a great way of refining the art of conversation in your life. And this is something that my 12-year-old daughter said to me. She had been at school and every week they put up a little phrase or pose a question for the kids to think about. And one week, Nasheen, they were asked this question. Are you listening to understand or are you listening to reply? Now, as soon as she said that to me, I was like, well, that is the absolute synthesis of this book. Are you listening to understand, right? Are you listening because you're genuinely curious and interested in what that person is saying? Or are you listening simply as an invitation, as a cue to get your side across, to get your opinion? Mm -hmm. Before you've even finished your sentence, I'm already thinking, right, what can I say? How can I reply? How can I talk? Now, in order for you to be a great conversationalist, focus on the former, I'm listening to understand, and less on the latter, that you're listening to reply. Nihal, what would your wife say about your uh, great conversation skills and your ability to listen? I'm curious to be nosy about your personal life in terms of the skills that you've written about in the book. Well, uh, it's a very relevant question because she'd say, uh, I'm terrible at it, right? Like I'm terrible at it. Uh, and that's, again, one of the aspects of writing this book is realising how terrible I have been at it at home. And that's largely, I think, for a number of reasons, just a relationship. A job that involves a lot of talking often means that I'm talked out by the time I get home, uh, which is completely unfair to her because she hasn't had that chance. Mm. So you make that um, distinction. And I'm not listening. Sorry, I've just interrupted. But you've made that distinction between like professional conversation in your professional life. And actually, there's a gap. It can be a gap at home. And, I, and people in these kind of jobs, I, you can sort of relate, but... How, how yeah, without question. Yeah, without question there has been. And that's something that I especially have to work on, communication within a relationship and understanding and space, but also conversation as a father and also kind of taking a chance to step back. I mean, often the problem in relationships is that it's the emotion involved that stops the conversation from being effective because you're not listening to understand you're listening simply to reply. So in that respect, if you've got two people doing that, that's a recipe for conversational disaster. So you have to take a step back in a marriage and make sure that both people are, are getting out of it what they should be getting out of it. And it's, like I said, since writing Let's Talk, it's really made me think about on occasion how poor I've been at communicating and certainly at listening. You know, we're 17 years in to our marriage and we've got two teenage children uh, and you still have to work at that. You know, you definitely can't take that for granted that, you know, you'll, you'll always be there and that you can just end up being two people 
who watch each other falling asleep every night on the sofa. And that's it. That's life. And that's mm. just can't be life for my wife and I. If if other people like that, then fair play. But that definitely can't be life for us. So there's a very important question to ask, really, about how good are you at this at home? And look, this book is never, ever designed to say, I've got all the answers. I'm the best at this. You follow me. Like some kind of life of Brian of conversations, right? It's like he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And that's kind of... Uh, how I feel about this, that this is very much a, a guide for me as it is mm. for anyone that decides to buy it. Which conversations do you find are the most difficult in your life? Is it professional asking the boss for a raise? Is it potential interview subject that's coming up that you know is going to be slightly fraught? Or is it, I don't know, with a sibling saying you're putting your weight with mum? Or, you know, which space do you find you've got your heckles up a bit? Or do you just find a bit more difficult? Yeah, I think conversations, uh, difficult conversations... Um, where emotion is involved, where a lot of emotion there's or, or emotional baggage is involved are always going to be the most difficult ones to have. But, you know, I am a very open book on the radio and actually an open book pretty much in life. Um, with all conversations, you are learning to navigate all the time who that person is, who they need you to be, who you need to be. And that's always a, a to and fro, right? A push and pull. And that that's fascinating to me. I think it, I've, I've learned through this book to not call up my mum as a performative act, but actually to call up my mum and listen to what it is she's saying to me. Even when she's talking about next door's cat or the fact that um, the neighbour next door has done this and done that, to actively listen to her rather than just think, well, I've done my good deed just simply by calling her. Mm. You know, I have to think differently about that. And all of, you know, writing this book has made me think about all of those things. Calling my brother more, who I love dearly, but just calling him rather mm. than calling him where it's when it's something to do with mum. But also calling my mates when their name comes into my mind. I've started to do that over the last few months. So if their if their if their face or their name comes into my mind, I call them. Well, how's that? Been? I mean, I was thinking. Hmm? Sorry, I was just how how has that been? Because I mean, I'm sure you know some people might be writing notes. What 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 is the key? What are the key takeaways here? So you've started calling people rather than relying on WhatsApps or text messages necessarily. Yeah. And how, yeah, how do people respond? How does it how does it look in your life now? Well, it's overwhelmingly it's so lovely to hear from you. And you just get a catch up, and then you tell them. You say, look. This is how I do things now. Like, I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to schedule in a Zoom with you, right? Like, I've known you for 25 years or 30 years. There are two guys, one called Andy, one called Terry, who, without question, I'll speak to almost every other day. And in the case of Andy, we always sign off by telling each other we love each other, right? So I am, I am definitely of the case of where I'm, I'm kind of slightly sick of WhatsApp groups, if I'm honest. And... I think you're fooling yourself if you think you're connected to someone because you're in a WhatsApp group. You're not. You're really not. It's the most superficial form of communication. Just because you've shared a GIF or you've had a bit of a laugh, there's nothing of real depth to it. And if anything, I think you end up becoming more and more distant from each other because what you're doing is fooling yourself that you're connected mm. when actually you're not really so that's what I do. I call people up and I speak to them. 
you know. I know it just kind of makes it. I know it's weird because it makes you kind of sound a bit, a bit weird, but but and a bit old school and a bit old fashioned and kind of like, why would you do that when you could do a WhatsApp voice note? Because you just don't know where it flows. I feel as though we need to fight back against WhatsApp groups. <laughs> say, look, you know what I mean? Like, if someone comes into your mind, they've come into your mind for a reason. So call them. Call them. What's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is they'll just kind of go, well, why are you calling me? At which point you know that they're probably not really great friends. Or, you know, I think a lot of people could relate in the audience. People let it go to voicemail. People are very old and they'll text you, what's up? (laughs) Yeah. They're very scared of picking up now. But also then you have to be really honest and say, I'd really like to hear your voice. Right. And especially for men to say Mm. that or to say, and this is, I think, a really difficult thing because we did a show about male loneliness recently, to actually tell another man that you miss them. Right. It's quite I think it's quite hard for a lot of men to say that. But I'm lucky that I've got one or two friends, certainly, who I could say, I miss you. And they'll say, I miss you back. And then we'll get in contact and then we'll speak. You know, there's no question that we will do that. In fact, maybe three or four people that I could do that to. Yeah. You know, and I feel blessed that at my age, a middle aged man, that I've still got that because women have less friends than men in our 20s. But by the time men get to their 50s, our social groups shrink. So they're the sort of deeper connections. They're friends that you've known for a long time or it's family. What about small talk? What about making conversation with someone randomly at the bus stop or that awkward moment in the lift where you're with the colleague that you semi-know? What's your view on that and how do you approach it? Well, I'm not someone that um, looks down their nose at small talk. It's really important. It's, a, it's, just a re, it's just a human connection. But again, Nusheen, it just comes from curiosity, right? You just start a conversation with someone, as I did on the train recently, and he was probably in his late 70s. He had been widowed eight years. He went, he'd gone to a boarding school. He was, after decades, going to meet up with his former classmates, play cricket for his school. They were going to be wearing certain ties, their old school ties. Now, if I just got on the train, put my headphones on, looked down at my phone, I just wouldn't have got to have a conversation with this wonderful man. And he really was. He was a really interesting guy. Uh, and when I first got on, I thought to myself, okay, is he looking at me like, oh, gosh, I don't want to sit next to this guy. But as soon as we opened up the conversation, it just flowed. So small talk is good. It's really important. And also as well, the water cooler moment is really important. Yeah. And while people choose to work from home rather than go work in office environments, there still has to be space for you to have that water cooler moment. And some people would talk that and say that's small talk or it's unnecessary, but actually it's communication. That's what it is. It's feeling seen, feeling mm. heard. And that can be 10 words or that can be two hours. You know, it can be at a bus stop or it can be in a restaurant or it can be away from the speakers in a club. It can be all of those things. I think we both have sort of come up in a workplace where you could actually, when you first went into a building, you could hear people making phone calls and having conversations and learning how they did their jobs. Whereas, you know, if you go into loads of creative media environments now, it's just lots of eye messaging. It's lots of that going on. So yes. it's harder. 
I think we have time for one more question. It is the final one. Do you think there is pressure on journalists to have more confrontational conversations for clickbait or for getting headlines? It's a difficult question for me to answer because I'm not in that world anymore, nor do I wish to be. But I think there's definitely, I think you'd have to ask the managing editor of LBC that question. And I think probably we know the answer to that. If you're asking the managing editor, I'm from a BBC perspective. My show, I've always said, uh, and it's been a given throughout Five Live, is we want we want light, not noise. That's what we want. We want to give our listeners light, not noise. If you want noise, there's other places you can go where they're just shouting at each other or just kind yeah. of trying to wind each other up and say things like, um, refugees in five-star hotels, discuss, text in after the news and some ad breaks, then we'll get at it with 700 people who are angry about the idea of refugees getting five-star hotels even though there is no evidence, of course, of refugees being yeah. in five-star hotels. But it makes for great radio. You know, all that stuff we, I, 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 I steer well clear of, Nasheen. Likewise, I could say the same. But um, I think that wraps it all up, guys. Thank you so much. I should pick up the book again. The light is fading in this room, but it's out now. It's really great. And as you can tell from Nihal's conversation tonight, there's a lot to learn from it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.